0: Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. They say it's a rude guest who comes to dinner and talks about theology and politics, but the readings required of us today. In 6 AD... Quirinius, the Roman governor of Judea, imposed a census on the region for taxation purposes. And this census provoked a resistance from a Jewish leader named Judas of Galilee, who encouraged his fellow Jews not only to not participate in the census, but to actively resist it. His group of discontents went so far as to burn homes and steal the livestock belonging to Jews who did participate in the census. Now, at that time, there were three major factions in Israel. There were the Sadducees, who could be considered the elite religious establishment, those who actively partnered with their Roman occupiers. And needless to say, they were not very popular with the common man. There were the Pharisees, who emphasized the purity of the Jewish religion in such a way that made them more theologically conservative and opposed to the Roman occupation. The third group was called the Essenes, and it's thought maybe that John the Baptist had some sort of association with the Essenes because they were a proto-monastic group that withdrew into the desert and were awaiting God's return and judgment. Judas of Galilee then and his group added what might be considered a fourth sect into the mix that was based on a sort of radical notion of the- theocratic nationalism. They believed only God ruled Israel, and therefore they staunchly opposed sending any taxes to Caesar. This group's actions were credited by Josephus, the Jewish-Roman historian, with inciting the first Jewish-Roman war, which lasted from 66 to 73 AD. And far from being a success for Israel, included the destruction of Israel's temple in Jerusalem and the mass suicide of the last Jewish resistance fighters at the siege of Masada. Now, it's commonly agreed upon by scholars that Paul's writing of Romans precedes the events of the Jewish-Roman War, he most likely wrote between 56 and 57 AD. But as a Jew, he would have had his finger on the pulse of the various political factions and tensions and fault lines and attitudes of his countrymen. He intimately knew the tendencies of these four sects because he describes himself in the letter of Philippians as a Pharisee of Pharisees and would have been familiar with the more radical tendencies in the popular Jewish psyche. It's in this milieu, then, that our epistle reading from today was penned, which is a continuation of passages we've been studying the past few weeks in our series, Living Sacrifices, Living into the Christian Story. What we will see is that Paul continues to flesh out that story for us today, as he carves out a middle ground, a tightrope that Christians must walk on, one that avoids the anarchy of the theonationalists like Judas of Galilee, while simultaneously avoiding the idolatry of the emperor cult of Rome that worshipped the emperor as a god. What Paul argues on the foundation of the Old Testament is that God works for our good in all things, even in the actions of the state which he has appointed, so that we can grow in holiness. Paul's discussion about obeying government officials is interconnected with his discussion in chapter 12, where he expressed our Christian duty to love both our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also all of those that we encounter outside of the church, including our enemies the trajectory of Paul's larger argument from chapters 12 to 13 moves from our individual private lives to how we engage with the public civic sphere. As such, his goal is not so much a systematic treatment where he prescribes a particular mode of governance like democracy or monarchy, but rather his focus is on discussing our orientation, those who are in Christ and participate in his self-sacrifice, toward the state, whichever state we might find ourselves in relation to. We can therefore understand that while Paul's context was very different from ours, and that he was writing in the context of a Roman Empire that was at best indifferent to Christianity, but at worst openly hostile to it, the principles that he gives us in our reading this morning transcend that particular context and become enduringly relevant even for us today. Now, the first point that Paul makes is that Christians should obey governing officials because the government is appointed by God. And he gives this instruction to every soul, meaning that it's something we should all take seriously. Now, this is not a thought original to St. Paul. He's drawing heavily from the Old Testament. For example, Proverbs 8.15 reminds us that, "...by me, the Lord, kings reign and princes decree justice." Daniel 2.21 says, He changeth the times and the seasons, he removeth kings and setteth up kings, he giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. Jeremiah 1.10 tells us something similar. See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. The Deuterocanonical book, The Wisdom of Solomon, which is a beautiful book, in chapter 6, echoes similar sentiments. Listen, therefore, O kings, and understand. Learn, O judges, of the ends of the earth. Give ear, you that rule over multitudes and boast of many nations. For your dominion was given you from the Lord and your sovereignty from the Most High. He will search out your works and inquire into your plans." So we owe obedience because these are divinely appointed institutions. The church father, Ambrosiaster, explained that obedience to the state is actually a tool that helps us learn how to be obedient to God. But there is a balance here. Contra Judas the Galilean and the radicals, obedience is the norm. Contra the Romans and their emperor worship, Paul reminds us that government is appointed by and judged by God. Now, at this point, it's helpful to answer the question that everyone asks when they read Romans 13 To what extent should we be obedient? Is our obedience unconditional? St. Augustine, in his commentary on Romans, says no. He reminds us that the state's authority extends over matters temporal not over things spiritual. Nor do I think should we read St Paul as saying that God endorses every temporal action that a ruler takes. Rulers can be bad or good, wrong or right. But he reminds us that they are ultimately accountable to God. We see something parallel in the 39 Articles of Religion in the back of the prayer book, where it says that even an ungodly priest is someone that God can use to administer his sacraments and preach his gospel. Similarly, a bad ruler can still be used by God to accomplish his will. So, for example, if the state tells us that we need to wear masks or social distance, I think that there's an obligation to obey. But if the state were to say that as a minister, I was no longer allowed to say the mass, then I would have to respectfully disobey. But our default setting should be obedience. The reason for that posture of obedience, Paul says, is that resisting the state is resisting those appointed by God, an act that Paul warns leads to judgment. Because a ruler should punish bad conduct, but if you do good, you receive commendation. One can think about our very own Ronaldo Brown here at St. Paul's, who has so enriched our community through his humanitarian activities that he's received recognition from local authorities for his work. He received fairly recently the Dallas G. Pace Humanitarian Award. At the same time, we should acknowledge that the ruler bears the authority of the sword, which means they are a legitimate means whereby God executes his judgment in the world. So as we pray in the prayer for the whole state of Christ church, we beseech thee also so to direct and dispose the hearts of all Christian rulers that they may truly, and impartially administer justice to the punishment of wickedness and vice. But Paul reminds us, our obedience is not purely because we're interested in avoiding punishment or gaining temporal rewards. There's something deeper at work. He says that we should obey not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. It's not just because we fear punishment, but because we know that disobedience is bad for our souls. Understanding and abiding by God's providential ordering of our world is good for us. Not doing something out of fear is less good than if our motivation comes from a love of him and a desire to be built up into the image of Christ. So contrary to Judas of Galilee, Paul concludes by saying that as Christians, we should pay tribute, which probably speaks to property taxes. We should pay customs or revenue which probably refers to sales taxes. And he goes on to say that we should pay fear and honor, which speaks to a respect for those in offices of authority that leads to a larger posture of obedience. Anglican bishop and Pauline scholar N.T. Wright reminds us that Paul was attempting to avoid both anarchy and emperor worship. The respect he describes that's due officials is not because they're divine themselves, it's not even because they're good or bad at their jobs, but because their authority is derived from God because he has ordained them. In effect, St. Paul situates us in the uncomfortable tension of dwelling in our present moment while anticipating God's eschatological justice in the future. So Wright tells us the church must live as the sign of the coming complete kingdom of Jesus Christ. But since that kingdom is characterized by peace, love, and joy, it cannot be inaugurated in the present by chaos, hatred, and anger. In many ways, then, we can say that the obedience and respect we pay to governing officials can be an expression of the kind of enemy love that St. Paul has been describing throughout chapters 12 and 13 of Romans. Now, as American Christians, we occupy a democratic republic in which we can participate to a greater extent than Christians could in Paul's day. And I think that we should participate to the extent that we can. That's a good thing. By voting, we can write letters to our representatives about issues that matter to us, and we can engage in all sorts of other activities and give our time and money to further causes that we find important. And I think that the goal for those of us who are Christians should be to better the lives of our neighbors and to increase ways of human flourishing. At the same time, Paul gives us an important reminder that our engagement with the political needs to avoid the pitfalls so often endemic to our larger culture. Namely, the fashioning of politics into an idol, partisanship, and the hatred that comes with it. One could say that he who lives by the 24-7 news cycle dies by the 24-7 news cycle. Our moral imagination shouldn't be formed by talking heads on our favorite news stations, but by the church's teachings about how society should function and the words of sacred scripture. Further, to avoid partisanship, we have to remember that as the church, we aren't the action wing of the Democratic Party, nor are we the Republican Party at prayer. We are ambassadors of Christ and resident aliens. Moreover, whoever we identify as our political opponents should be understood first and foremost as fellow human beings who bear the image of God, people for whom Christ has died. Which reminds me of advice that Anglican minister John Wesley gave to his congregations before they voted. I told my mom, you have to be very careful what you name your child because he might grow up and become an Anglican priest. The first piece of advice was that you should vote for whom you deem most worthy. The second is that you should speak no evil of who you vote against. And third, don't allow your spirit to be sharpened against those who voted differently. These recognitions and practices are only possible when we take to heart the reminder that St. Paul gives us in Romans 13 this morning, which is that God is ultimately in control. He's not in heaven wringing his hands, hoping that X candidate or Y official doesn't mess up his plan. He sets up nations and rulers. He roots them out and pulls them down. He plants them and builds them up. Now, in all of this, there's a greater question wrapped up in there's a greater question wrapped up in all of this about how God's will is related to our human choices but that's a whole other 30 to 45 minute sermon that I will spare you from this morning. (laughs) What we can take away from that discussion, which has been occurring in both the scriptures and throughout the Christian tradition, is that there is no trade-off between God's will and our choices. That even when human beings act with the intention of evil, God works in those circumstances to bring about our good. So to close, I want to pray a prayer And the prayer is from the letter of 1st Clement. It's one of the earliest Christian writings that we have outside of the scriptures. It was penned sometime in the mid-90s. So let us pray. Give harmony and peace, O Lord, to us and to all who dwell on the earth, just as you did to our ancestors when they reverently called upon you in faith and truth, that we may be saved while we render obedience to your almighty and most excellent name and to our rulers and governors on earth. You, Master, have given them the power of sovereignty through your majestic and inexpressible might, so that we, acknowledging the glory and honor that you have given them, may be subject to them, resisting your will in nothing. Grant to them, Lord, health, peace, harmony, and stability, so that they may blamelessly administer the government that you have given them. For you, heavenly master, king of the ages, give to human beings glory and honor and authority over the creatures upon the earth. Lord, direct their plans according to what is good and pleasing in your sight, so that by devoutly administering and peace and gentleness, the authority that you have given them may experience your mercy. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, Amen.